0: Uh, I want to start today. I know it should be um, a day where we begin with like Christmas, right? But if you will bear with me, I'm going to um, start talking about something potentially very boring and mundane, which is about the Bible. Um, And if you're into Bible stuff, then you're going to love this. And if you're not, I won't blame you for sort of checking out for about three minutes here, please. Uh, if you want to do that, go ahead. But this Christmas story is what um, some scholars call the infancy narrative part of the Bible or the Gospels. Right? Infancy is a bit imprecise of a term because uh, there isn't a whole lot about infant Jesus or Jesus as a child at all, but they call it that nonetheless. And what's interesting about these stories is that while for us in the sort of uh, timeline of things, they constitute the beginning, uh, it's most likely that these stories were actually uh, inserted at the very last part of writing these Gospels, right? And so Matthew and Luke contain two of these, right? There are the two books that contain these stories. Mark and John contain actually no such thing about Jesus being born or Jesus where Jesus came from and so forth, right? Because they start with Jesus. Mark starts with Jesus sort of just grown up, right? Pops up and is baptized, and that's Jesus. John, uh, which is, you can see, as kind of the stoner Gospel in some way, right? is in this, like, starts with this kind of pre-creation, beyond time and space thing where Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? And then after that, boom, baptism again. So, we don't really get anything from those two Gospels about this, but if we think about that for a second, uh, that's kind of crazy, right? Like, imagine uh, a Gospel without the passion narrative or the death and resurrection, right? That would be bizarre to us yet Christmas this Christmas story is not present in all the in all the Gospels right to go even deeper here to sort of in my quest to delegitimize Christmas um, for much of early Christian history the sort of importance of God or Jesus as a human being was was uh, not hot or sexy to talk about or think about right sort of downplayed in a way and Christmas itself Um, The first recording we have of a nativity feast that becomes Christmas isn't until 336. And so, to me, when I hear that, uh, what we find is by actually caring about this holiday, by caring about this story, we're making a theological argument. We're trying to say something about who God is through this story. And so we're making a claim, I think, here about incarnation um, and the very humanness of Christ. If we think about it this way, uh, the story then becomes to me something much more tangible. Right? It has all these like fantastical, magical elements to it, right? like things showing up, immaculate conceptions, and, and shepherds, well, not the shepherds are not that interesting, but <laughs> angels and multitudes and stuff, right? But when we think of this story as telling us something about God's humanity, um, then it becomes really close in a way, right? Uh, it becomes something familiar to us right? we see a shocking and unexpected pregnancy we see frightened teenagers we see things about sexual and marital customs at that time there's a big and ominous political backdrop to all of it and then there's also just this little baby right and christmas is for me this very dramatic thing about people people and our bodies that we have i looked over uh some of the previous christmas things we've done and neil who was a pastor here before. Pre sermon, I think last year, where he said, it's not the spirit of Christmas, but the body of Christmas. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but that sort of closeness, right, that that closeness we have in our bodies. Okay, I'm done with that Bible part, so come back to me if you've gone. Uh, we've, many of you will be familiar with this practice Lectio Divina, right, we've done this uh, at welcome tables. We've done this in a lot of different things. It essentially, it's this practice of close reading. Right, You read something very closely. You sit there. You meditate on it. You pray. You see what comes to you. You read it again. do it again. And, you're, and through that process, you're hoping that uh, the Lectio Divina, right, the divine reading, will sort of reveal something to you. So we're going to do that really quickly as a big group, because as I was reading this passage this week, um, there was one little chunk that stuck out to me, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I'm going to put this up. This is verse 19. You have here three different translations of this verse. I'm going to invite you to read it, and then take a moment to think. Read it again. Take a moment to think, and read it one more time. Um, and so I'll give us a couple minutes to do that. Okay, let's come back together. I wanna offer an opportunity if you had something insightful, not even insightful, let's forget that word, something at all to say, um, something that came to you, an image, an idea, a story, whatever it may be, who would be brave enough to, to testify? Very true. Anyone else? I read the first two, I think like just talking about considering what's happening in her heart felt very like visceral to me. (laughs) <laughs> Contemporary English version. Patrick, can you say something about that? It's a, a version by the mainline. Uh, it's a scholarly version. 20th, century. 20th century? Uh, 21st century? 21st century. They didn't do a great job for you, I guess. Anyone else? Definitely you and I. For sure. Yes. I didn't even notice that change. But I kept thinking about how they all start with but. And how it's telling this story, this amazing story. And this sentence always starts with but. Which to me implies that like the second interpretation I, too, had um, a bit of an obsession with the butt <laughs> <laughs> in this text, I should say. Um, yeah, I was like, why Why is, <laughs> now it's just going to become, why is this butt here? This butt makes no sense, um, and I'm very curious about this butt. So that's, I think that's a good way to think about that second passage uh, is more, illuminates that butt a little bit more. <laughs> Rachel? Uh, yeah, I was also noticing the change between like she's like sort of pondering it in her heart versus in her head. And um, then I was thinking about the fact that like I was also doing that. Like I was very much like analyzing like, okay, I can get this right. Like, what are the different analytic differences in these? And then I was noticing that like, that's actually not how you describe the exercise. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I am noticing now that perhaps my usage of multiple translations was a bit distracting in some ways. It wasn't my intention that it would become an analysis of how we interpret Greek or something like this. But um, I think the points are, have, been, have been made, have been very interesting about what is revealed, not just in the sort of presuppositions or of the writers who interpreted this or translated it, but also... The different ways that one can take something like an event and, and take it up within themselves, whether you treasure it or you ponder it or you are concerned or anxious about it. Yes? yes. How to see the that are happening. I like that. So outside of you can take that, take this down if you like. Uh, outside of the translation of it, uh, just the very fact of this passage being there, right? Like in the context of this whole story, we heard this, we read this. We heard the story, right? It's like all this stuff is happening, blah blah. Shepherds come, they leave, and then there's this just little curious little verse. But Mary. So on and so on, right? To me, there's something kind of tragically comedic about looking at this verse in the context of today, um, in our current cultural moment. One would think that with all that was going on that was so wild, that anyone, let alone Mary, would take it in and remember it and, and soak it up and ponder on it, right? This seems to not do that with something so crazy like that would be absurd. Yet I'm also reminded um, of this phenomenon that keeps happening to me with each passing day and gray hair that uh, I can't remember anything anymore. <laughs> and then my friends and I will be hanging out and we'll talk and it'll always be now like, were you there at that thing? Or where, where did we go that one time? Or whose birthday was it? Or why did she get mad at you? Or uh, this constant <laughs> sort of, Memories that uh, leaking out of my head, right? And granted, usually with those stories, there's alcohol involved in there, but either way, there's something curious to me about the way that what we think of as an unforgettable experience can become very quickly something very forgettable, right? My mother, uh, I've asked her many times, my mother has never had a drink in her life, so she doesn't have that to blame. I've asked her many times, mom, tell me stories about me when I was a baby or a toddler, right? I'm trying to, most of the time when I do that, I'm trying to figure out whether or not (laughs) the neuroses and weird shit in my head is something I developed recently, or maybe it was there all along, right? I'm trying to figure something. So she, I ask her these questions, she basically remembers nothing about my childhood or being a baby or a toddler, right? She's told me the same two stories over and over again for the last 20 years. And it's so annoying to me. One story is, um, apparently when I was like one and a half or two, I was told I couldn't drink milk because I drank too much of it and then I cried so much for the milk. My mom finally was like, fine, drink the milk. And I was like, no, I won't drink it because you said I couldn't. That's one story. (laughs) A person of deep principle from the very beginning. Uh, And then the other story is that uh, when I was about three, I was in a hair salon with my mother and there was a man in there getting a perm and I, made fun of him for getting a perm, and everyone in the salon laughed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, There's something ironic about that, because this is a perm, actually, or I've had my hair perm many times, so I apologize to that man um, in my spirit. But these are the only two things my mom remembers, right? How is it that uh, with her precious baby boy, she could forget all of it, you know? How is it that we take experiences and they become memories to us? More than just things we passively experience and under happen around us, but they become actually something implanted, right? It struck me this year, thinking about Christmas and saviors and incarnation and all that stuff, that I was sort of missing something in my thought process, right? Or more precisely, I would say, that I was forgetting something. It struck me that also in our last two months, we've been doing these meditations on like loneliness and grace and gratitude. And so much I think of what prevents us from being a certain kind of person that we might want to be, right? Someone who is fulfilled and full of gratitude and, and always walking in grace. Right? Also has something to do with the way that we forget some things. In one way, simply forgetting something is just like a natural process, right? Uh, we forget to be thankful because we forget to do the thankful, thankfulness ritual that we set forth for ourselves, right? The journal we wanna do, we forget to do it. We also forget things that we should be thankful for, right? Sometimes we're like, I'm thankful for my job, and then other times we forget to be thankful for having employment. I think also we forget and this might be irritating for some of you to hear but just remember I'm not your overly religious mother when I say this. We often forget a God who is always with us. right? Always close to us. Who we might have experienced at some point in our life to be very close and intimate and magical in some way. So we forget things in this very kind of mundane way. We just forget them. But Deeper than that, forgetting is not just a problem of us having sort of imperfect brains and faulty minds. I think more so what it reveals is something about how we see the world. We are constantly again having these experiences, right? But to put these experiences into a a way of memory for us is to actually construct and create a certain type of reality. Memorization and memory is actually a creative act in a lot of ways. It can be willful and intentional. We are building and creating a reality, a way we want to see and live and feel in this world, right? And this memory that we have, this memory we are constructing, right? It's what grounds us. It's what holds us. It's also what pushes us forward into the future. And all this... Big story, this little throwaway line about Mary, but X, this little key I think exists for us, right? Mary treasured these things. She pondered them with intention and attention. She built a world she would choose to have faith in, right? A world where her child was a gift from God for all people. Those three translations, she pondered, she wondered, she interpreted her experience such that it was more than just a thing that washed over her. Right? But it was also that which would create something new for her. Right? In some ways, you can read the story and see Mary as this very passive character. Right? She's sort of just hanging out. The angel, angel shows up, tells her all this stuff. And then Joseph you know, has to do this census thing, so he grabs her and they go to Bethlehem and blah, blah. Sort of dragged along in this story in a lot of ways. Right? But we get in this little piece This little verse, um, Mary's activity, right? Her claiming agency, her taking control. She becomes not just a character moved along, but she becomes a creative participant in this story. To treasure things, to build a storehouse of memories for ourselves, right? To visit and revisit again and again, to ponder, wonder, and interpret for ourselves. To tie it back a little bit to the, to the Bible nerd talk in the beginning, the Gospels themselves are a product of memory. Right? An oral tradition sort of passed down through time, eventually put to paper. Right? But putting it down on paper also cages it in some ways. right? I think for us, this question of the historical facticity or fidelity of these stories, uh, which is often what we modern people are so obsessed with, is a misplaced way of thinking about these things. Right? What was written down for these people, the intention was never uh, fact in the way that we like to think about it today. Right? What they were doing was writing down a memory. They were writing down what people remembered and what they remembered was worth remembering. Something they could re-member and re-invoke as well. They wanted to tell a story from their memory that would say something about a certain way that the world was, that could act as a foundation and a building block for the way the world could be one day for them. Memory is a miraculous thing in this way. And this is the thing about Christianity that always uh, messes with me deeply, It's the thing I love the most about it, and the thing that is the most difficult about it, which is that Emmanuel, right, God is with us. This claim that we make about God and incarnation and truth and so forth, it's not the same kind of claim you would make about the rotation of the earth. The earth is gonna spin whether or not we want it to. But Christianity, um, a claim about God and Christ In this sort of weird, counterintuitive, paradoxical way, um, is it inseparable from our willingness to actually live into it, right? And to remember it, and to have it become a part of us, right? In the the vocabulary of classic Christian thought, it is to confess, right? When we confess it, that's when it becomes truly real. And in that way, uh, I think of this kind of way that we invoke God in today's story, to be about attention and intention and memory and asking us to make a conscious and willful decision to choose a kind of world that we want to construct in our minds and in the world itself, right? A world where incarnation is just the beginning of this story, right? And a world that we pay attention to and bring about, right? Where messiahs are born and angels can sing and all this stuff can happen. So this Christmas, (laughs) this Christmas, um, what I want to challenge us to do, and what I've been challenging myself to do, is to not be passive observers of this story. There's a sort of seduction, I think, to that desire, right? Because when we read a story like this, it's like, holy shit, all this stuff is happening. I want that to happen to me, right? We want to be blown away and swept up and, and... have bolts of lightning come down and be like these shepherds who were just minding their own business and suddenly God appeared to them and they were like, they couldn't ignore it, you know? But that's not how it generally works, right? And this is what Mary's wisdom for us is today. To see the way that we're not just gonna sit and wait for something, right? We're gonna be active and necessary participants in the incarnation of God. God is with us, God is in us, God is through us, and the key for us now is to not forget that.